Welcome. Everybody get enough turkey? Wow. I love this week. And after church today, after the service, we're going to have a, uh, a luncheon over here. So don't run out. Please go to the Gathering Center and join in. And uh, as I heard before, sit with some people you haven't talked with before. Let's increase the fellowship. Well, the last three weeks, including this one, we've been looking at three prominent parables. Two weeks ago, Daniel preached on the parable of what? The soils. Okay, Tom, you can't answer the next one. Last week, Daniel preached on the parable of prodigal son. If you were going to name the third prominent parable, what would it be? Who said that? Did you read the program? <laughs> no, people. Oh, that's right. The announcement. I'm just not here for that. And so here's the key to understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer, a doctor, and a walked into a bar. No, no, a doctor and a lawyer, and then what would be the third one? Priest. Nobody said banker. A doctor, a lawyer, and a meth head walk into a bar. <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? That's the key to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the, the parable turns on, I'll give you a little heads up, on the word compassion. Now, you heard that word last week in the uh, sermon of the uh, prodigal son. Compassion. How many of you remember the Greek word for compassion? Okay. It's so cool to say. It's, the first syllable is splang. Say splang. Splang chinzithe. I was full of splang chinzithe. That's the Greek word. And it's important that you know what that word is because we'll see in a moment it uh, identifies a uh, quality. Now, compassion. I was trying to think about this this week for myself. When was the last time you felt compassion for someone? Just, just raise your hand if you can remember. I won't call on you, but can you remember a time, the last time you felt compassion? I was just thinking that that we just don't have the uh, frequent occurrence of that in our uh, population. Now, why is that? Because we hear sociologists talk about compassion fatigue. What does that mean? It's not that people are overly compassionate. It's simply that your TV screen and your uh, iPhone can present you with case after case after case of pathetic people who are in need and we just watch those and go by and change the channel but there's no what does compassion feel like can you identify that within yourself now what would be important here's this person and I'm going to feel compassionate toward this person. What is it about this person that makes compassion well up within me? 
What are things that we feel compassionate about in other people? I'm sorry? Similarity. We're similar to them. What else? They have a need. Go ahead. I mean, a lot of people have needs, but what is it about a person who has a need that we would feel compassion about? They can't, they can't solve it themselves. Compassion, it says that we feel compassion. It doesn't sound like an intellectual concept, does it? It says sometimes we are moved with compassion. What does it feel like to be moved with compassion? Is it pleasant? Compassion. Think about that. Compassion. Uh, I think I saw maybe two weeks ago somebody found a sack of puppies on the road by somewhere near a rifle. A couple of them were dead. And the rest of them, this person picked them up, took them to the vet, to the pet rescue center. Did that, did that person feel compassion? I, I think all of us, we think, a sack of puppies, oh, let's, let's pick them up. Let's take them home, kind of keep this from mom. And then a couple days ago, there was a fire at an apartment complex in Denver. Did you see it on TV? Those of you who are over 35 who watch TV probably saw this news broadcast where people were jumping out of second-story windows onto what? Mattresses that their neighbors had brought so they could jump out and not get hurt, right? And uh, they interviewed one young man who said he saw a mother, second story, holding her baby, ready to drop it. He ran over and caught the baby. They interviewed him. He didn't look like a doctor or a lawyer, but he caught the baby because he had compassion, didn't want the baby to get hurt. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Now, as usual, what is this I always bring up when I speak? This is a what? Study Bible. And that means that it has a lot of explanation for things that when you just read the text like the NIV, you would look at that and not really know what that meant. In fact, in the NIV text, it says the word pity instead of compassion. Now, if you had an NIV study Bible, you would know what that word that they use as pity means compassion and that Greek word we said a moment ago. So in other words, the study Bible is a good investment to take some time every day to sit down with your Bible and dig a little deeper into what it means. Luke 10, 25. Fascinating story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Not, a, not an attorney as we think of it, but an expert in the Jewish law. 613 commandments from what we call the Old Testament. They simply called it the law. And he was an expert, which meant he could probably recite all 613 in order and give you an example of each one. He stood up to test Jesus. What's, it, what's his intention here? Is he a serious learner? No. He's just going to test the teacher. He said, what must I do 
to inherit. Now, how do you inherit something? Somebody dies and leaves, uh, leaves something to you in their will, right? I always thought that was kind of a strange word. How do I inherit eternal life? You've, you've probably inherited something from someone along the way. If you're not a family member, how do you usually get included in a will? You do something that influences, like uh, Cara Wood, 17-year-old in Ohio, she was a waitress at this restaurant. This older fellow would come in, and uh, she was kind to him, took care of him, over a period of about a year and a half. He died, and she found out he'd left her half a million dollars. She inherited because she had become important to someone who had substance to pass on. The uh, teacher of the law here, the, uh, the, the uh, expert, is, is saying, how can I get in line, how can I influence God so that I can have eternal life? Now, was he thinking about heaven when he said eternal life? No. Anytime you read those words, eternal life, in the New Testament, the concept of heaven really wasn't very clear for the people, the Jewish people, or the Gentile people living in that day and age. There really wasn't much of a concept of the afterlife. So what do you mean by eternal life? I, I read up on this, and some of the rabbis would say that uh, common, ordinary, everyday life is just kind of how we function, we go about, we pay our bills, we eat, we work. Eternal life is life where we are taken up with an interest in and a focus in things of eternity. So it's this life, but a dimension that incorporates God and God's things. But there's also another concept that probably was at least a concept during the time of Jesus because they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And eternal life, I believe for many of these well-meaning Jewish people meant that I want to be around when the Messiah comes, the Roman Empire is vanquished, and Israel is restored to a prominent national world power. I want to be around even if that happens after my physical death. I would love to be resurrected in the last days. You understand that? It wasn't an ethereal heaven somewhere. It was a literal life on earth with Israel being uh, promoted back to norm, uh, national prominence, international prominence. How, how can I inherit eternity? In other words, how can I get on God's good side so that I can be here when the Messiah comes or come back and be here for Israel's redemption? And what did Jesus say? Jesus answered and said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So, <laughs> The law, such a thick book, with so many marks on it. How do you read it? He asked the expert in the law. Now, the expert in the law could have given several answers. On another occasion, when Jesus was asked a similar question, the uh, sixth through ninth commandment were, those were the ones that were verbalized. But here, the expert in the law says, in the next verse, he answered, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. 
and love your neighbors yourself. Where did he get that? <laughs> From the orchard. Where did he get the love your neighbors yourself part? Now we know that love the Lord your God, it was spoken every day by every faithful Jewish person found in Deuteronomy 4. But where did the love your neighbors yourself come from? As far as I can tell, no Jewish scholar or believer had ever put those two together before Jesus. I have searched and searched. I've not been in. And it seems, it seems unlikely they would. Because the second part, love your neighbors yourself, is found in Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, comma, but, second part of the verse, B-side of the record, love your neighbor as yourself. How on earth would you have found such an obscure comment located in Leviticus 18, which also has those chart-topping hits of do not wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. How many of you have on cotton and rayon today? You are out. (laughs) And here's what I really love. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly (laughs) and revere your God. I mean, Leviticus 18 is full of stuff, and on the backside of one verse, love your neighbors, you say, how on earth? You see, as best we know, no law-keeping Jewish person in the time of Jesus would have gone much beyond the vertical, love God. When you say love your neighbors yourself, what do you do? Horizontal. So in other words, there are two criteria by which you may inherit eternal life. And that is love God, love your neighbors yourself. And so the next verse, this is kind of comical when you read it. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. In other words, Jesus said, you believe the right thing. What if Jesus had said, well, you believe the right thing, I guess you're in. No, he said, you believe the right thing, do it, and you will have real life. In other words, it's not just what you believe, you believe the right thing. It's what you do that qualifies you to inherit eternal life. If you want to be around on the planet when Israel is restored to international prominence, do this and you will live. You see, it wasn't just what you believe. Christians in our day and time have become so cognitive that they believe that it's what you believe that gets you to heaven without behavior, without action. Jesus said, do it, and you will live. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man said, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself because Jesus had just said, do this. And he hadn't been doing it, at least not to everybody. And so he said, who is my neighbor? Now, that's a trick question. Every Jewish scholar and active Jewish participant in the day and time would have thought, my neighbor includes only righteous Jews, only other righteous 
Jews. Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, said, you've heard it say, love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, the, the Pharisees had raised hating and hostility toward their in- enemy to a virtue. And so this man is asking, probably there were 15 or 20 that he would have counted as neighbors because he knew what this guy had done. And he wasn't righteous, so he didn't count. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said very clearly, oh, wait, a story. A man was going, go ahead. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, in that day and time, everybody knew what that meant. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles, descended 3,000 feet from Jerusalem to the east down to Jericho on the river. Now, we don't really know much about that road, but if I said Highway 82, how many of you would know? Well, I know where Highway 82 is. A man was going down. You see, Jerusalem was higher, but also more important, from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was attacked by robbers. I guess he appeared to have some some means. Now, if someone were going down from Aspen to Willits, would you think that that person would have some reason to be robbed? If they were going from Aspen to Silt, would that be in the same category? Just messing with you. Highway 82. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, and they left him half dead. We don't know where this was on the road. Somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho, a man, we don't even know what nationality he is, probably they would have considered him to be Jewish, but you couldn't tell. They took all his clothes, and so you couldn't tell what nationality he was. And then what happened was a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, if a priest is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, what does that mean? This is not a trick question. What do priests do in Jerusalem? They serve at the temple. So if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, what has he probably just done? Serve the temple. And he's probably going home. So he's not in any hurry. There's no purity requirements of going to the temple. A priest going down, he saw the man. Remember this phrase, saw the man. You're going to see it three times in this story. And he passed by on the other side. He reached over carefully and pressed the auto lock on his door. (laughs) And passed to the other side. Now remember, this is a story. It didn't really happen, but Jesus is telling it. And then the next verse, so too a Levite, who is an assistant to the priest, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus' audience that he's talking to, he's talking to an expert in the law, right? And probably other Jewish leaders, Jewish population, disciples. And so what would his crowd have thought that you've got two of the most prominent religious leaders in our day passing by a man who has been robbed and beaten? What would they be, think- what would they be thinking? They'd be a little confused. It's like, well, well, well what? yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, a priest isn't known for but he's a priest, he's a leader. And then he says, and then a, 
you would, what would you expect? A banker, right? A priest, a Levite. Where are we going with this, Jesus? And then the next verse he says, A Samaritan. Boo, hiss. Now, Samaritans, Samaritans lived between Galilee and Judea um, in what is now called West Bank. So to get from Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, about 90 miles, a good God-fearing Jew would cross over the Jordan River, go down the east side to Jericho, and then come up to Jerusalem. They would not come through Samaria. Why not? Because in around 500 B.C., the Babylonians and Assyrians had come in and conquered the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and their policy was to take a lot of the the, crop, the cream of the crop back to the conquering nation and then send in people from that nation to populate the area that had been conquered. And then those people intermarried. And so the result in northern Israel was that you've got Jewish people interbreeding with Babylonians and Assyrians, and the result is called Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans actually got started before that when the kingdoms divided and the king of, of the northern kingdom saw everyone going to Jerusalem to worship. He didn't like that, so he said, hey, well, let's build a place to worship in the north, Samaria. And on the mountain of Samaria, built a place to worship, Golden Calf. And then later, a, a temple was built there. About 100 B.C., the Jewish leaders at that time had a sub-kingdom went north and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And, and to retaliate a little bit, about 480, some Samaritans brought human bones into the temple and mixed them with the sacrifices. I mean, that's worse than college rivalries, right? And, and so the Samaritans were loathed. When we think of the parable of the Samaritan, what's the adjective we usually put in front of Samaritan. The good Samaritan. The Pharisees probably would have said the damn Samaritans. <laughs> That's what's ruining the country. We don't need them around here. What is a Samaritan doing on the road between Jerusalem and, 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 and Jericho in the first place? It'd be very dangerous for a Samaritan. I mean, is he coming from Jerusalem? What's he doing in Jerusalem? He wouldn't get a welcome there. It's a story, remember? <laughs> a Samaritan coming down the road as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw. Now remember, priests saw, Levites saw, Samaritans saw. What's different is what happened after they saw. Because they passed by. When he saw him, he took pity. And the word there is compassion. The same word that the father had for the prodigal son. But it's also the same word, if you, if you look it up online, Asked to see the other occurrences of compassion in the New Testament. Jesus in front of a leper had compassion and healed him. Jesus in front of the 5,000 had compassion and fed them. Jesus in front of the crowd that had no shepherd had compassion and taught them. Jesus, compassion, Jesus, compassion. And he always followed it up by doing something to take care of the condition of the one he had compassion for. He took pity on him and went on his way. No, that's not what happened. Next verse is, 
He went over to him. Now, now this is a bloody mess. Uh, there's no ambulances back in the day. The person is a bloody, naked mess. He bandaged his wounds. He probably did not carry a first aid kit. He probably took some of his own clothes, bandaged the wounds, poured oil and wine, which in their day, what they had for an antiseptic, and then put the man on his donkey. So the uh, injured man is riding the donkey. The Samaritan who owns the donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now look, this is overkill. This is just a story. This didn't really happen. Why did Jesus add this on? He could have stopped with the Samaritan went over and bandaged his wounds. And he just rubs it in. He put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, took care of him. And the next verse says, the next day he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look, after him, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense. It's kind of like, oh, Jesus, stop just twisting the knife. <laughs> I mean, isn't it enough? He took compassion on him. It took about one-twelfth of a denarii to stay a night at an inn. So he paid two weeks, three, 24 days in advance. The good Samaritan. Now, what's the crowd around Jesus thinking? What's the crowd around Jesus thinking when Jesus said, but... The Samaritan came along and took pity, compassion. What did the crowd around Jesus, what were they doing? They were cringing. They hated the Samaritans. How could the Samaritan be a hero of this story? Jesus, are you trying to get stoned? I mean, why are you making a Samaritan a hero? That's the least person we would ever have thought. It wouldn't cross our mind. And then Jesus said to the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Now, why did Jesus ask it that way? I would have asked, which of the three loved his neighbor? That would have been clear, right? I mean, the, the Samaritan went out of his way, took care of the guy. He loved his neighbors himself, right? But Jesus says, who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand. Why did, he, why did he pose it that way? Listen to the answer. The expert in the law replied, he couldn't say Samaritan, could he? The one who had mercy on him. He couldn't say Samaritan. And Jesus asked uh, which one was the neighbor because the original question was, how can I hear eternal life? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, if you identify a Samaritan as your neighbor, who you got to love? He trapped himself. And Jesus said, go and do. Likewise. Go and believe. No. I guess you have to believe to do, but go and do likewise. So we see in this story that Jesus, and this certainly is one of the most prominent uh, parables, that Jesus turned everything on its head with this Jewish audience so that they could understand that truly in the Old Testament, it was primarily, primarily a vertical relationship with God, and you're good with God if you keep the commandments. If you don't kill 
steal, and commit adultery, and you're good with God. But Jesus expands it to say, you've got to be good with people God loves to be good with God. How do you feel towards someone who mistreats one of your children? <laughs> How many of you have ever gone to the school and talked to someone in charge because your child came home and indicated mistreatment? Well, God is our Heavenly Father. How do you treat those whom He loves? Yeah, but they're just uh, Samaritans. Compassion. In fact, compassion takes over. Love takes over. In the Old Testament, under the Jewish law, if you kept 613, which really didn't have a whole lot to do with how you treated other people, just as long as you obeyed the law, you're good with God. And Jesus adds a horizontal dimension to being good with God. And that is loving people. Loving people. In other words, you can tell how well you love God by how you treat people. Wow, is that an indictment? And you may not mistreat people, but do you have compassion? Do I have compassion appropriately for people? Do I love people? In, um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Now remember, Paul, who wrote this, came along after Jesus was... Uh, died on the cross, was resurrected, and he carries forth Jesus' primary ethical principle. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now in the Old Testament it was obey the law so that God will bless you and not cut you off. The new ethic is be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving just as in Christ, God forgave you, but that's not enough. The next verse is, follow God's example, therefore as dearly beloved children, and, verse 2, and walk in the way of love. So we've got a new ethic here. It's not just how loud you sing your hymns or how big a Bible you carry. It's how you treat other people. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering. Now look, don't, don't miss this part. Love your neighbors yourself. Is that the kind of love described here that Jesus did? Is, it, is, is Jesus' love described here bigger or lesser than love your neighbors yourself? How many of you think bigger? <laughs> the last night of Jesus' earthly life he spent with his disciples in the upper room. And in John 14, he gave them what would be the new ethic for how they were to treat one another. Now, yeah, Jesus had talked about love before. Um, certainly love your neighbors yourself. But he had talked about uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule. And then there was, he astounded them in his Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. And that just rocked everyone back on their heels. Because who was, an in, who was an enemy to a Jewish person in first century Judea? The Romans, the Samaritans, the Grecians, the Egyptians, everybody who was not Jewish. 
Love your enemies. And then in John 14, Jesus tells his followers this. And he gives them a measure of love that they could hardly conceive of. Have we got John 14 there? Let me just read it to you. A new command I give you. Love one another. How well have these disciples loved each other during the last three years? I mean, this bunch of clowns, they were always on each other. And they just did not get it. They were, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. I'm the best apostle. So when he tells them to love one another, it's already a step up from the way they've been treating each other. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Matthew, do you remember that day I was walking down the road? You were collecting taxes. Everybody hated you. I said, come and follow me. And have a, how have I treated you, Matthew, since that day? Love other people like that. Love one another as I have loved you. So do you, do you get the distinctions of love is not just like you love um, turkey or um, pecan pie. Love is what often is moved by compassion to take action to sacrifice oneself for the sake of another person. Do we love one another as Jesus loved us? You, you would have thought the way the church has kind of turned out and the reputation we have in society is that Jesus said, judge one another by the law. I mean, isn't it true that people outside the church think we go around mainly judging sin? And Jesus said just the opposite. Love. Love one another the way that I have loved you. Now, remember, we said that there were 613 Old Testament commandments. And John said in 1 John, obey Jesus' command. And he identified it. His, his brother James said, love your neighbors yourself, was the royal law. And John says in 1 John, he says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. From the beginning of what? The beginning of the church. After Jesus taught them in the upper room. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech only, but with action and in truth. So here's our challenge, and it's a great challenge to have. As I leave this place today, it'd be easy for me to go to people that I know care for me, people who are like me, and chat converse with them, but it'd be difficult to go to someone I hadn't met before, someone perhaps who looks like they're here alone, and maybe have compassion for that person and say, hey, my name is, and what's your name, and hey, it's so good to meet you, I'm so glad you're here, what brought you to our church? That would be, that would be fleshing out in a very small way, less risky way, what it means to love one another. Because you would be in a way sacrificing time with your buddies to go talk to somebody, and you don't know what they're like. I mean, they could be a Samaritan. They could be someone 
that you wouldn't want to continue. Who knows? And, and then you go in and you, you get some food and, and you look to sit down. There's your buddies over here at that table. And over here, someone looks like they're uncomfortable. They're alone. And where do you go if you want to follow and fulfill love one another as I have loved you? You leave the parking lot. You drive home. You go to work tomorrow. And you're looking around with your love radar. How can I have compassion? Why is it I don't have compassion? I need to, I want to find ways to love others the way Jesus loved me. Because that's real life. That's really, really living. When the essence of your life is giving, compassionate, sacrificing of yourself for the sake of others. There's nowhere else in town where that statement could be heard without laughter or derision, right? Real life is sacrificing of yourself for the sake of others. Like Jesus did, this represents his sacrifice for us. The bread is his body broken for us. And the cup is his blood shared for us. And so when you come to take communion, say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. How can I do for someone else in line with your direction that we love as you have loved us? Let's pray. Almighty God, we are just astounded at Jesus in these conversations with these stories and how he just, just lays it out and just people are so flabbergasted. And they're on their heels. They're trying to figure out what he means. And, and he can't mean that. And if he means that, this means this. And God, help us to be the kind of listeners who take in what you're saying and begin to act on it. Love God, love people. Yeah. Go and do. It's not just what we believe. Thank you, God. But it's how we can express that through our behavior and through our love for others. So Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.